So Money Episode 308, Lauren Milan. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money. Welcome back. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. My guest today is a former model turned serial entrepreneur, TV personality, and author. Lauren Mylan, at just 19 years old, founded a boutique winery, making her the youngest self-made winery owner in the country. Can you believe it? And since then, she has served as the founder and CEO of LMB Group, which is a strategic marketing company, and is a founding partner at Gen Y Capital Partners, an early stage venture firm focused on investments in mobile and consumer-facing technology-enabled companies. Lauren's passion in business is to marry marketing, branding, strategy, and technology. She's going to co-star in a new TV show on Oxygen this January called Create Your Day Job. She's also the author of the best-selling business memoir, The Path Redefined. In our conversation, we learn how her father's upbringing influenced her dedication and drive to becoming financially independent at a really young age. I mean, really, what does it take for a 19-year-old to want to launch her own business? And of course, she was doing this while in school, while expecting a child. And her so money moment when she sold her winery and why she says, you know what? I was really scared in that moment. A fascinating and inspiring conversation. Here is Lauren Mylan. Lauren Mylan, welcome to So Money. I'm excited to have you on the show. I've known about you for so long. We've connected over the phone, here and there, email, but now to actually have you all to myself <laughs> for the next 30 minutes, it's such a treat. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Varnoosh. I am so excited to be on So Money Podcast. Your career as a businesswoman started at a very young age, 19 years old. I want to just ask you really quickly, what kind of a 19-year-old has the the desire and the drive to begin a, an entrepreneurial empire? Like, who was Lauren Mylan at 19 years old? It's so funny. I think that, you know, who Lauren Mylan was at 19 was a more advanced version and sophisticated version of who I was at 10 and 11 years old when I started my first lemonade stand when I was a little girl. And, you know, I've always had that fire in the belly to be an entrepreneur, to make my own money. And I think I probably owe it to having two parents who always said to me growing up as a kid, you know, you can you can do things your way when you make your own money and you live in your own house, you can make your own rules. And so I was just always so eager to make my own money so that I could make my own rules, so that I could have my own roof over my own head. And so I think that's always kind of been my motivation is this independence that comes with entrepreneurship and um, and then finding a sense of identity and belonging along the way. Well, I want to ask you about what you did with your money once you started making money. But first, let's talk about your new show that's launching in the beginning of 2016. It's called Create Your Day Job. It's on the Oxygen Network. What is it about? I mean, tell us just what's – tease me. I want to watch the show and we all want to get everyone to tune in. So tell us about it. So, you know, I Create Your Day Job is an entrepreneurship show, you know, that really shows the the thought process behind 
being an investor and what it takes to want to invest in an entrepreneur. And so on a lot of these, you know, investing startup entrepreneurial TV shows these days, you see a very quick yes or no, you know, yes, I'm in, yes, I'm out. Uh, I'm, I am investing. I'm not investing. But you don't really understand the decision calculus behind that decision that made the investor decide to either invest or walk away. And so we really show the journey of mentoring, advising, challenging the entrepreneur, helping them refine their business if we're interested in in learning more, and then ultimately our decision to either invest or not invest in their company. And on Create Your Day Job, we we being my my fellow co-hosts and co-stars, which is a, a Canadian entrepreneur named Sarah Provet, who started Sprouter and Betakit, Randy Zuckerberg, who ran marketing at Facebook in the early days, Ido Leffler, who owns a natural skincare brand called Yes2 Carrots, and it's the Yes2 brand of various products, um, various f- fruits and vegetables, if you will, and myself. And so you get on our show not just our money potentially, but also a lot of our insight, a lot of our advisory services um, in a condensed uh, in a condensed form. And so it's it's kind of like you know, figuring out your startup on steroids with four super successful entrepreneurs who are going to help you figure it out. And even if we don't invest, I have to tell you, most of the companies that come on leave saying, thank you so much for helping me figure out my business. I have a lot of work to do, but at least I know what direction I'm going in. So it's like Shark Tank, but you get that deeper context. You get the behind the scenes, essentially, of what it takes to start this company and then how as an investor, potential investor, you make your decision. It's definitely a deep dive show. Our show is definitely a really um, deep dive, but a really fun, fun look at what taking that deep dive is like and what it is like for us as young, successful entrepreneurs ourselves to be real people who really, truly believe in and want to support entrepreneurs. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's made for the millennial audience and it's fun, it's fresh, it's exciting. Hopefully it'll you know, have you on your seat. Hopefully it'll tug on some heartstrings, but you know, it's real. And everyone I think has asked me, you know, is it scripted? And it's like, no, this was really real. And you know, what, what we were able to produce and create is quite amazing. As a young female, would you say you're a millennial? Yeah, I am a millennial. Yeah, I'm you 30. Millennial. You're 30. Oh my gosh, I'm so old. Um, I'm 35. <laughs> no. But it's every year makes a difference, right? When you're in your 20s and your 30s. As someone who uh, helps young people with their businesses and with their money, what would you be your best piece of advice for someone who wants to take their financial life from good to great? They maybe don't want to start a business. Maybe they do, but you know, maybe that's not the ultimate piece of advice. But how to really, you know, one fresh tip that you would suggest to someone who wants to just have more financial independence in their life. Considering that the audience too might have student loans, they may not be happy in their jobs, they're having a tough time saving. What would you say? So I think my advice is fairly simple and perhaps even funny to some people, which is I'm a sale shopper and I very rarely purchase anything full price unless I feel I have to have it. It's like an utter necessity or it's something that never goes on sale. I do have a couple of really nice things I've treated myself to that just never go on sale, but I am a sale shopper at heart. Um, 
you know, today is Cyber Monday. I know that this interview is going to come out later. <laughs> I planned to take advantage of Cyber Monday. Um, and so those things really make a difference. And for me, I'm a single mother and I have two children. So raising two kids in New York City is no small feat. And so every little bit does count. You know, I'm the Costco shopper for our snacks and uh, juice boxes and things that we need in bulk, even like toothpaste and lotion. And, you know, I stockpile things. And I do think that that makes a difference. You hear a lot of people saying, you know, give up that expensive coffee every day or that $7 latte. Those things make a difference. They really, truly do. Um, But aside from that, I think I've always kept myself on a true budget. So even now, I allow myself access to, no matter what I'm making, I allow myself access to a certain amount of money every month. And then I keep myself on a budget for cash that I'm going to pull out of the ATM on a weekly basis. And I really keep track of, I mean, I know a lot of people just kind of keep their money in the bank and then they just spend, 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 and then the bills come and then they pay. And if they don't have the money to pay, then they make installments. And I've really kept myself on this kind of budget ever since I was a little girl, even when I was getting my allowance. And so I'm also instilling that in my children. And so literally like, you know, if it's a house repair or something that I have to do, then okay. But even when I go and transfer those extra dollars above and beyond my monthly allowance to myself to take care of something, i.e. a home repair, when I make that transfer from one account to the account that I can use to to actually pay bills and live off of every month, I put a note and I say why I'm making this transfer and then I kind of pledge to put it back in that pot. So if the next month I make more money than I thought or I have a couple extra dollars, I make sure that it goes back into the savings pot and I, I act like I don't have it. And that's that's how I live and that's how um you know, I think I've been able to really stay um, very disciplined with saving money, with how to spend money, and ultimately with making sure that I that I have money. And it's funny because I was in a store the other day um, haggling for some headphones. And so I gave the guy, you know, he was wanting to charge me what I thought was too much and I thought that they were marked wrong and whatever. I gave him a $100 bill and he goes, oh, but you're a rich lady. Why does it matter? It's okay. And I said, no, I'm not a rich lady. You know, it's, I have a $100 bill because if you walk around with big bills, you don't want to break them. And so then you very rarely <laughs> spend them. And I've been doing that. I read the psychology journals. That's what that says. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I've been, I've been doing this since I was a kid. Like even when I would get my Christmas money and stuff, you know, I would go and I would change it to really large bills. Mm-hmm. I'd either put it in the bank or I'd change it it's into true. really large bills because you're deterred from wanting to break it and spend it. You know, if you have $100 and you have $25 bills, you, you know, you'll spend it very easily on a bunch of little things because $5 at a clip isn't that much. But if you have this $100 bill, you're going to say, gosh, do I really want that mm-hmm. $4 coffee? Do I really want to break it with this $100 bill? Probably not. And so I do kind of play that that mind game with myself and it it seems to work so far. <laughs> and by the way, some stores won't accept any bills larger than 20 or 50, so you're really stuck there. He, you, did, he did check it with that. Point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You mentioned, as you were talking about some of your strategy, you know, the importance of having money. And as somebody who has such a diverse career, you have various income streams. You know, we've talked in the introduction about how you have worked as a venture capitalist. You are obviously a business owner, startup advisor. You can add author to that uh, resume as well as um, model. 
how important is it? You, you wrote a book called The Path Redefined, and it's all about redefining success for yourself. How important is it to have your hands in a few things um, as opposed to leaning on the one revenue stream? So I don't know that I can advocate for doing what I'm doing because I don't think that everyone has that sort of risk tolerance to be able to you know, rely on various streams of income that also come at you know, intermittent sometimes, you know, that, that arrive sometimes intermittently, that's a really difficult thing to do. And you do have to have, you know, some sort of a financial nest egg and, you know, self-discipline to be able to do that. I think what's more important is making sure that wherever you feel you are incredibly talented, that you find a way to capitalize on those talents in your profession. So for me, I feel wholeheartedly, and it's it's been validated at this point that I am, you know, really good at, you know, four or five core things. And so why give up something? Why give up a revenue stream that I know I'm highly qualified to do and very good at? But there are also some people who are just incredible artists and all they are are, are artists and they just want to make art all day. They don't want to do the business side of art. They don't want to maybe have a podcast art. They don't want to maybe have multiple income streams um, and multiple jobs as a result. And that's okay. But then you pour all of the energy that you would be pouring into four or five different jobs that would give you four or five different revenue streams into your one your one passion that you're incredibly good at that you can really capitalize on. So I guess I'm saying go where you have the most leverage. Go where you're going to get the most mileage and where you're going to translate that into the most income for yourself or for your business. What excites you the most when you look at the next five years for yourself? You've done so much by the young age of 30. What do you want your 30s to represent? Gosh, that's a great question. You know, especially considering that now I think 30 is the new 20. I think 40 is the new 30. I think, you know, 50 is the new 40. So, I almost feel like I have done life backwards in so many ways. You know, I was married young. I was having children young. Um, I was in college at the same time, you know, getting my bachelor's of science in international trade and marketing. I was divorced young. I was a single mom young. And I started companies young. I sold them young. So I, I do feel like now is going to be my time to... A, spend more time giving back. And I think it's been really important to me to make sure that I'm, you know, making enough money and have enough wealth and enough experience to be able to give back both financially and also with my time. And it's wonderful to mentor people and to give them this self-empowerment, but it's even more powerful to be able to mentor someone and give them actionable tips and advice for their life and their business that they can actually take and, and, you know, capitalize on right away. And so that's really important to me. And I also see, um, you know, I see my life going in more of, I I spent a lot of time in the last 11 years from the time I started my vineyard and winery at 19 to now learning exactly what I wanted to do, proving to myself and proving to others that I was good at more than just one thing or more than just two roles or jobs or responsibilities, and also figuring out where I wanted to spend more time, where I wanted to take a deeper dive. And so now at 30, I feel as though 
I've got a really good grasp on not just that I'm good at those things, both internally and externally validated, but that there is a way to meld them all together that's really quite quite amazing and powerful um, and has the potential to be very profitable. And so combining media technology and venture um, along with public speaking and being an author and having best-selling, you know, a best-selling book and maybe others in the future, I think is probably where my 30s are going to be spent because now I know exactly what I want to do. I'm really clear on exactly why I want to do it. And and the roadmap is much clearer and my network is far more diverse now to make everything that I want to have happen, happen. I always say you got to just make the most of your 20s, fail hard, and you'll just rise stronger in your 30s. There's a there's a gift, there's an investment in just being uh, ex- explorative in your 20s. By the way, Lauren, how did you start a winery at 19? Don't you have to be 21 to at least taste the wine? <laughs> yeah, you have to be 21 to taste the wine, but not to own a licensed and bonded facility. But at 19, I was, the timeline is this. At 19, I was actually a vineyard owner. I was growing grapes that I had had planted, purchased the rootstock, um, planted the vines, started growing grapes. So from 19 to 21, I was a vineyard owner and a grape grower, which is really much more of an agricultural farming operation than anything else. I sold grapes to other wineries for two years that made award-winning vineyard-designate gold and double gold wines out of my fruit. At the end of the second harvest, by this time I'm 21, I said, I'm not selling grapes. I'm going to build my own winery and my own tasting room. And if the wine that you're making from my fruit is this good, I'm going to make my own. And so I stopped selling grapes at 21, built a winery and tasting room. And then the third harvest, which I was then 22, we began processing our own fruit into our own wine and opened the tasting room and winery to the public August of 2007. Meanwhile, I was pregnant with my first child who was born December of 2007. And I was also in my senior year, last semester of college, pursuing my bachelor's of science in international trade and marketing and used my vineyard and winery, specifically the tasting room business, as part of my senior project. (laughs) So the end of 2007 was a very busy year for me. But by the time uh, we were actually producing wine, I was 21. And by the time the tasting room opened to the public to sell wine and pour it and consume it, I was 22. You talked earlier about having this fire in your belly. You had parents that were very supportive and influential. But honestly, at 21, what was it that drove you to do so much, so many adult things, quote unquote adult things, you know, like becoming a parent and having a business? And I mean, most people are just worried about getting through their midterms (laughs) at 21. Why, Lauren? Why were you different? And why are you different? What do you think really encouraged you, pushed you, almost was a necessity for you to do so much so in such a short period of time? That's a wonderful question. I really think that I have had an old soul since I was a little girl. I've been incredibly mature ever since I was a child. Um, I mean, everyone will, will say it, everyone who knows me, even from my modeling days, and I haven't modeled in 10 years. And you know, everyone said, gosh, you were so mature, even when you were modeling and you were like 16, you know, I was very disciplined. I was very mature. Um, Modeling for me was just, 
you know, it was a job. I'd show up, I'd have my homework from school. I'd be really disciplined. I'd sit in the corner when I wasn't needed to, to shoot, do my homework. I stayed on top of everything. I loved making money. I loved that independence. And so that drive for me, I think has always been that independence. And now today the drive for me is A, the independence, but B, the ability to also really make my own schedule and create my life in the way that I want to live it. And that is so powerful, especially being a single mom. You know, I'm, I'm able to carve out time and do things on my own terms, which is why the subtitle of my book, The Path Redefined, is getting to the top on your own terms. And I don't think that everyone has to make, you know, tons and tons of money in their lifetime. I mean, I often say to some friends of mine, you know, the lifestyle of someone who, you know, has, let's say $10 million is the same lifestyle of someone who has $20 million. I mean, lifestyle of someone who has 10 versus a hundred, yes, a difference, but there gets to be a point where depending on how you want to live life, you know, the incremental difference isn't going to actually have an incremental impact on your life. And so I think I've just been really clear on how I want to live and making sure that I attain that goal. And, you know, it can either be about maintenance and kind of just making sure that you can maintain what you have or pushing to the next level of le- of wealth and uh, and lifestyle, if that's what you desire. But I think I've always just been so clear on what's most important to me. And I've always just been driven by financial independence, um, by the independence and autonomy of being able to make my own schedule and create my own life and do things really and truly on my own terms. I completely relate to what you're talking about as far as, you know, wanting to make money because that was your ticket to financial freedom and you recognize that at a very young age. For me, the recognition grew out of seeing how quite the opposite could be your reality. Not having the money could mean financial imprisonment um, or at least a dependency that uh, just you, you you go to bed crying at night. I saw that, you know, um, in my neighborhood around me and even in my home. What gave you that idea, that sense that money equals financial freedom? Was it something that was an experience growing up as a kid where you Witness this to some extent. Um, you mentioned the lemonade stand, but I'm wondering more about kind of how you were introduced to money as a kid, your family upbringing, and what that taught you about the importance of, <clears throat> excuse me, establishing wealth for yourself. So awesome question. My parents um, grew up very differently. So my mom grew up um, as the child of um, an Air Force family, you know, in an Air Force family where. You know, they weren't wealthy, but they were very comfortable and things were provided and there weren't a lot of cares in the world. My grandfather was in the Air Force and my grandmother uh, worked on the base as the switchboard operator when switchboards were a thing back in the day. So, you know, there was there was always stability in that kind of scenario. They did travel, but there was stability, living on base, you have a home, you have food at the commissary, you know, things are just provided for. You know that you're going to be okay. On the on the contrary, my father is from a very small town in Louisiana called Alexandria, Louisiana, which is not a wealthy place, wasn't then and it isn't really now. Um, it's gentrifying, but it's it's not a place where there's a lot of industry, where there's a lot of jobs. It's a small town in somewhat rural Louisiana and was part of this migration of families that left Louisiana and went to L.A., And when they arrived in LA, in Los Angeles, they went to South Central LA. And so my father was raised in South Central 
and, you know, was not the person who was going to be expected to do what he did, which was, you know, to go on to UCLA and go on to the Anderson School of Business and get a degree in engineering and then get a shot at going to Wall Street. My father really, truly defied the odds, A, and B, was considered to be a trailblazer. I mean, of his family, even, he's the only one to have gone on in his generation to have done this. And then, you know, I am, as his child, the the only one um, amongst my cousins have, that have gone on to become an entrepreneur and um, and really have that same sort of drive that I guess my father had. And so though I didn't experience it growing up myself, I, I saw how my family was growing up. I saw how my cousins were being raised in contrast to me. I saw how um, it was to go visit my grandma, who still lives in South Central to this day, even though she can move if she wants to because she's been successful on her own. But that's her home and she's not moving. And so I just always knew from these stories and my the stories that my parents both have of, you know, of segregation, of how hard it was to get a good education, um, of financial disparity in their communities, even in even though my mom's uh, parents were in the Air Force, there was still just financial disparity when you left base um, or decided to have time off of base or when they eventually moved off of base. So I knew how I wanted to live. Um, and how I definitely did not want to live. And so I think I've just always had this, this strong intention. And I think every day, even now, I wake up with this really strong intention of I want to be successful and I own it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with owning it. I mean, some people will say, oh my gosh, that's like, that's so, that's so strong of you. That's so, um, intimidating or, but you know what? If you don't own it, you don't achieve it as far as I'm concerned, right? If you don't look at yourself in the mirror every day and say, I want it, I deserve it, I can have it, I'm going to work for it, then you never, ever attain it. And, you know, I just, I knew that I wanted to have a really good life. And then as soon as I had children, I knew that I wanted to give them the absolute best of any and everything I could possibly give them. And at the end of the day, you know, it's funny, recently people are always asking me, how are your kids? I mean, the people have always asked, how are my children? They're six and eight now. And the answer used to be, oh yeah, they're great. They're good. Now the answer is they're doing better than me. And it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an honest answer. These kids, my children are doing better than me. Their life is amazing. They're smart. They're in great school. Um, they're intelligent. They're well-liked. They've got playdates and birthday parties and extracurricular sports. And they're multi-talented, everything from dance to soccer to gymnastics to basketball to you know, competitive team sports. They are doing better than me. And I think that unless you really strive to do well, and a part of that, whether we like it or not, is having the wealth to be able to provide the things that we want for our children, to be able to give them the tools for success, um, that's what I always wanted. And I guess I never knew until recently that I always wanted to be able to say, my kids are doing better than me. And it takes, you know, part, you know, family values, part time, part attention, part discipline, part dedication, part wealth to make that all happen. Very well said. Yeah, it's uh, it sounds like you want to really uphold your family's legacy. And that's, um, that's remarkable. That's, that's something to strive for. Now let's talk about your so money moment, Lauren. As you mentioned um, earlier, you achieved financial success at a very young age and, and throughout your 20s just went on to um, really, really kill it. You know, How would you say um, you felt 
at your so moneyest moment, you know, the time in your life where maybe it was the first time or maybe it was sometime another time down the road where you felt that all of your hard work, all of your focus was paying off in a big way. And it was thanks largely to you and yourself. I mean, maybe it wasn't a huge financial win, but it was something else, but it was what you would define as a so money moment. So it is a financial win. And I will tell you, it was, um, it was scary. And when I sold my first business, I remember actually signing the deal and it's done. And then there's a bunch of follow-up and it didn't really feel real until I had the money in my account, until I had this wire transfer. And it was shocking. It was shocking and then I was scared and then I wanted to act as though, you know, I almost hid that money from myself. It was there, but I opened some like money market savings and I pushed it all in there. And of course at the bank, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you want to do something with this money? And I was like, nope, 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 no thank you. I mean, I was, I was still in this state of shock meets disbelief meets excitement, but I wasn't ready to do anything with it. And supposedly this is a very normal reaction because I literally kept money in just a regular money market account at my regular commercial bank like that you use with your ATM card. And I kept money in that account for a very long time. I mean, more than six months, less than a year. I don't recall exactly how long, but I, of course, was talking to financial planners. I had been talking to them before, knowing that I was going to be having this, this kind of uh, you know inflow of money. And I wasn't ready to pull the trigger. I was just so scared. I was so nervous. And I didn't know which money manager would really do what they say they were going to do. Um, I was hearing different things about fees. I was hearing different things about um, advisory fees. I was hearing different things about baked-in fees. I was hearing different things about tax consequences and making sure that the right money manager also takes into consideration your short-term and long-term capital gains and doesn't just buy and sell things to make you money and then you get hit with taxes. So I was overwhelmed with making this really huge decision that I was not prepared to make. And I also wasn't prepared to really let go of this money. I felt so much better knowing that my cash was sitting in this bank account, even though it exceeded the FDIC insurance limit. But I knew that it was like sitting in this bank account, even if it wasn't really growing much. And that just felt better to me. And so I guess that was my so money moment, number one. And then number two was actually finding an advisor that I felt comfortable with and putting that money to work and then watching that money grow. And um, I think that as an entrepreneur, especially, there there are so many moments of vulnerability and you don't really know when they're gonna come. And so when I had the offer to sell my first business, it was this, so money moment, I guess, but it was also a time of vulnerability. I was like, oh my God, I'm so emotionally attached to this business. Mm-hmm. But it would be so stupid of me not not to take this opportunity. And in fact, if I had not sold then, I can guarantee you that I would have lost so much money because the market then, the real estate market then in that part of Virginia also ended up going down. It's now come back up again, but I sold uh, almost five years ago. And I would just be getting back to the point in the real estate market as to where I was when I sold five years ago. So the recovery time would have been long. And so I'm glad that I had good people in my life that were like, Lauren, (laughs) these are not reasons to hold on to a business. Like this is not your third child, even though you think it is. Like they talked 
real true sense into me. So that was also a so money moment for me. But then it came again when I actually had the cash and it was another moment of vulnerability. Oh my God, what do I do? I thought I knew everything. I thought I was smart. I thought I was prepared to make this decision, but I guess I'm not. And, you know, it's like you take all the time you need until you can really figure it out. Um, But you never know if you're making the right decision. I think that's the really scary part when you've worked so hard to create value and then you're able to actually extract the value and then it's time to like put the money to work and you don't want to risk losing it again. So for me, I guess every so money moment has been combined with um, a lot of vulnerability and, um, you know, they've been gut-wrenching moments. They've been scary. They've been really, really scary, but they've been worth it. And I think it's also really underscored for me that nothing that's worth having comes easy. And, um, you know, I think at, at the inflection point of every incredible moment is probably a lot of fear. And at least for me, that's the way that my life has been. So you have fleeted failure a number of times. What is an example, a time when you made a bad decision? You know, I've made poor decisions. I think that the decisions I've made that are that are really poor or more, more so in my personal life than in my professional life. Um, but I think that professionally, uh, a poor decision that I made was in hiring. And I think that hiring people is really difficult and, you know, passing the reins to someone else on things that are really critical to your business that are like the foundational parts of your business, whether they be legal concerns or accounting concerns is also really difficult. And, um, you know, in, when I started, Gen Y Capital, the venture firm, we had made a hire um, that I was not pleased with at all. And at the time I had, you know, I had business partners and this was my first real time having business partners that actually had a say in the, in the company and they wanted to hire this individual. And so I had to really, you know, bite my tongue because I was being told that I just didn't want to hire this person just because. And so I really had to bite my tongue and prove them wrong and show that I was a team player and it was like the most difficult 60 days ever. So for 60 days, we had this person working in the business that I just felt was ruining it. I felt wasn't, you know, pulling their weight, wasn't bringing value. Um, it was very difficult to work with. And that over time, we we learned had a reputation that we didn't want to be associated with. And um, ultimately, we let that person go. Um, but it took about 56 or 57 days. We were just shy of the 60 day mark and that was really difficult, but it was really difficult and it was a failure as far as I'm concerned because it reflected poorly on, on a point in that particular company where we should have just been on our A game and maybe only a few people externally knew that we weren't on our A game, but those people that did know were quite important um, and so that also really showed me that you can bounce back from failures um, as so long as you communicate very clearly and very consistently and maturely and that you're really transparent about what the failure was and what you've learned from it. But that moment also showed me that I have to learn how to articulate my intuition. And so as an entrepreneur before um, the venture firm, I had run my first two businesses primarily on my own. I was the main decision maker even in my first company, even though I had business partners. I called all the shots. I was the only managing member, active partner on a day-to-day basis in that business. And so when you then have partners and you you cannot just say, oh, well, 
my intuition says, don't hire this person. That doesn't work. And as smart as I am and as experienced as I am in business, I was not prepared with Gen Y Capital to, to start articulating my intuition to my partners, especially around hiring decisions. And so, you know, that was also a failure for me personally because I wasn't able to to communicate what I wanted and to, in the end, get what I thought I wanted and what I thought was the right thing. And so I very quickly learned that lesson because that could have really burned me very badly many, many times over. Articulate my intuition, also known as express yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what would you say is your number one financial habit, Lauren? We've talked already about how you're really into saving money. You don't, you rarely buy things on uh, at retail price, but what would you say is like a, maybe a conscious regular habit that feeds your financial independence? Um, regular financial habit is that I do not carry balances on credit cards. I am not surprised <laughs> by that fact. <laughs> I pay them off every month. Yes. Yes. It's actually a pet peeve of mine. I try to pay it off throughout the month. And it actually is a little trick to help your credit score because, um, you know, depending on when your credit score is calculated, it may be in the middle of the month and you may have plans to pay off your balance at the end of the month, but it will look at your snapshot of your credit at the middle of the month and at which point you might have, you know, racked up a bit of a balance and that can, um, in that moment can kind of hurt your credit score. So it's just a so little how FYI. Many, how many times a month are you paying your credit um, card? I try to pay – I just try to like go in once a week and just like clear the balance. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. I've um, never done that. Yeah, I do it on a monthly basis. I mean it doesn't um, really hurt if you're not in the like – I'll do that. I'll be more vigilant about it if I know I'm applying for a mortgage in the next six months or so because I just don't want to – be a victim of that. Yeah, just a little, little nerdy factoid for you and all the listeners. I had no idea. That's quite that's quite fascinating. I don't know that I've got the time to like go in and do it every week, but <laughs> you can schedule it. I think I don't yeah, schedule it, but uh, so another one of my another one of my I don't know if the question was pet peeves. I forget, but another one of my pet peeves is to look at my bill. Um, I really do comb through my bill, and because I I also don't use a lot of cash, I have a lot of like. $4 charges, $5 charges. Um, and so I do look through my bill before paying it. So I like to, like, I won't pay anything until I see it. And so I do not do those auto debits for that exact mm. reason. Um, but I do tell myself that on the second of every month, I'm going to sit down and do all of my bills. And, you know, I take like two hours and I, I go through everything and look at the bills and make sure that everything's correct. Um, and then, and then pay them. All right. We're going to do some, so money, fill in the blanks. This is our lightning round. And so I'm going to start a sentence and you finish it. First thing that comes to your mind, short answers are best. If I won the lottery tomorrow, a hundred million bucks, the first thing I would do is? Hire a driver and a chef. Nice. Oh, I would love that too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You think oh like gosh. I buy a Maserati. No, I would want a driver and a chef. <laughs> yeah, just drive my car. Um, the one thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Housekeeping. Mm -hmm. The one thing I wish I'd learned about money growing up is? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can never have enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, when I donate, I like to give to blank because? Because I believe in giving back. And 
Wait, no, the the question the, the sentence right. says when I donate, when I donate, I like to give to blank because Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You want to just ask it one more time sure. and I'll answer sure. it properly. When I donate, I like to give to blank because the New York Urban League, because I believe in giving back to our community, to my immediate community in my backyard and helping to create jobs and empower people. Fabulous. And I'm Lauren Mylan. I'm so money because. I'm Lauren Mylan. I'm so money because I'm such a mommy who needs money to take care of my children forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing great. I have to say, I your your kids are like you said, doing better than you are. And they're very fortunate. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. If you'd like to learn more about Lauren Mylan, her website is laurenmylan.com. That's M-A-I-L-L-I-A-N. You can also follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Mylan. All this information, including the audio transcript and comments at somoneypodcast.com, where you can also click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your question for the Friday episode of Ask Farnoosh. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money.